Consequence Podcast Network. Discography brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm an independent musician and a lifelong record geek. Discography is a show in which I wade through the entirety of an artist's canon releases to see how it all stacks up. To kick off, we've chosen one of the seemingly hardest to penetrate artists in the history of music, Frank Zappa. This is the fourth episode in that series. Discography exists to inform and educate listeners who really want to know. All opinions belong solely to me, Mark with a C, because everything is subjective. Frank Zappa was an American composer, and he's either going to alienate you or you'll want to build a statue in tribute to his genius. In our first three episodes, we covered the first, not one, not two, but 39 official releases going by the Zappa Family Trust numbering system, which, according to Frank, is supposed to add up to one gigantic song when laid and listened to end to end. We'll come back to that, not just in a moment, but over and over. Anyways, this seemed like a great time to do it because the ZFT-approved CDs that came out through Universal around 2012 are reportedly the best-sounding digital versions of Frank's material to date, and with such a massive catalog, this is a rare period where nearly every release is in print. I would absorb around two albums per week in preparation for this undertaking, and we've so far uh, covered the earliest... Official recordings with the Mothers of Invention, which had a fluctuating lineup, and eventually I think it just became a name that didn't seem to really mean all that much. Frank's flavor, direction, musicality, and sociopolitical commentary became clearer with each passing album. Here's a nutshell version of some things you might want to know about Frank if you're just joining us for the first time. There is a persistent rumor that he ate human feces on stage. It never happened, but Frank understood the importance of letting a good urban legend exist. There's often very little difference between albums attributed to Frank Zappa or Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention or the Mothers or what have you. Eventually, it was realized that he'd sometimes sell more records when he used the Mothers moniker, and I think that explains its occasional reemergence. Each member was important in their own way, but if you took Frank away, the members didn't have any music. No matter how much I tell you about Frank autobiographically, it really doesn't matter. Because once he got going on his quest to document everything that life had to offer, and I mean every aspect, very little that he saw, noticed, or experienced didn't end up informing his big song. As I said, Frank claimed that if you stuck all of his releases together end to end, you had one gigantic composition. Yeah, his birth in 1941 in Maryland, his first marriage, and then his second marriage to Gail, where they had all the children with the wacky names. These all might have mattered to Frank the guy, but they also informed Frank the artist. Whatever you needed to know about him was in the song. Nothing was sacred or off-limits. He lived to compose, and composition could mean just stringing pretty dots together to see what they'd sound like later, or it could mean making secret tape recordings of his backing band, because... If they're in the band, then any sound they make is part of the band, right? Right? So, infamously, he fought the PMRC, which I believe we're going to get to in this episode. He worked tirelessly to keep his audience informed and registered to vote, and he even helped to cool Soviet and U.S. relations during the Cold War just to help his records get further distribution. Well, in the beginning, at least. 
All of those things are interesting, but yet only the important parts to Frank would be chronicled in his big song. With so much time spent composing and recording, his life truly was the song and vice versa. Anything not brought up in the music is almost a breach of privacy because how much is this guy supposed to give you? Now I've got to warn you, Frank is an American composer and musical anthropologist and he pulls no punches. At some point, he will offend you. And at one point, even I was about to jump off this train myself. But as a huge proponent for free speech, Frank himself probably would grumble and balk at the fact that I'm giving a content warning in 2018. His feeling was that there was no combination of words that would actively hurt your life or send you to hell, but he also passed away before the advent of Tumblr and Twitter, so. So far, we've covered a bunch of Frank's phases, from his early days with the classic Mothers of Invention lineup, to the releases in his vaudeville period with the Turtles, to his controversial contractual obligation records, and we stopped in the early 80s just as Frank had made two wildly different forays into working with orchestras, as well as a complex early synthesizer named the Synclavier. He's had surprised hits so far with Don't Eat the Yellow Snow and Valley Girl, and by now, Frank is a fully independent artist. Things are gonna get weird. Are you ready? Trick question, you're never ready for Frank Zappa. Let's go. Where do we leave off? Week 22, ZFT CD number 40, Them or Us, released by Frank Zappa, October of 1984. This is exactly where the big song needed to go. It's a smattering of almost all the things that one might associate with Frank Zappa. It isn't perfect, and some of it is downright annoying, but coming off of the heels of the terrifying Jonestown, which closed the last movement in the big song, The Perfect Stranger, when Them or Us opens with the slow doo-wop strains of The Closer You Are, one can't help but think, ah, uh, yeah, that's what I came for. You get your jokey blues number in the form of a song called In France, which does come off as uncharacteristically xenophobic for Frank, but as he's first and foremost an American composer who lyrically seems to attempt to reflect very real attitudes, no matter how ugly or misguided, Frank takes a track with literal poop jokes and hands it to one of his heroes for the vocal duties, Johnny Guitar Watson. Conceptual continuity hounds will appreciate the nods to trouble every day when he says, smell your harmonica, son, and of course, the poodle that appears. But then there's a Yahazna, which is probably pretty divisive, though I've never really read that much about it. Instrumental component is fairly plain and unremarkable and actually plain to a fault, but the lyrics, as you heard, it's a backwards vocal and it sounds as if someone is actually singing the lyrics of a backwards tune phonetically rather than taking the easy route of just reversing the tape. Of course, if one were to go to the trouble of playing it backwards, they'd be greeted with lyrics from one size fits all's sofa. 
It's more than just a little bit inscrutable, but my hope is that it's gonna matter at some point, because as a standalone piece, it's kind of obnoxious despite our ripping guitar solo. And speaking of revisiting earlier portions of the big song, there's an updated version of Charlena. It has much in common with the original that was found on Chunga's Revenge, which I think was ZFT number 10, but I'm just going from memory. Anyways, it has a lot in common with the original, though the beat's a bit more island influenced than I remembered. So far, this portion of this big old tune seems to be reprisals of earlier themes, and the instrumental called Sinister Footwear 2 adds to the third movement of the aforementioned song from You Are What You Is. Now, it's reportedly from a ballet, and I only know that because I'd read about it somewhere. Otherwise, though, it's not unlike many instrumentals that Zappa does with his rock outfits at the time, where it's heavy on the rock god guitar tone. Chad Wackerman's got some super digital sounding drums and some keyboard work that sounds incredibly dated right now, but is very nice overall working over complex and dense rhythmic shifts. Meanwhile, truck driver divorce slaps us back into Frank's Sprechgesang. I hope I've been saying that right. The spoke sung vocal delivery over a pretty vaudeville sounding song with hugely depressing lyrics. Possibly a commentary on the state of country music at the time, but more than likely just something Frank felt like writing. The sung portion is actually much catchier than I'm making it sound and lasts for about 90 seconds before we plug into a seemingly unrelated instrumental portion, not unlike Sinister Footwear Part 2. Actually, that carries through another seven or so minutes, so the first part seems like a direct descendant of Lonesome Cowboy Bert and Harder Than Your Husband, while the second part is apparently a live version of a Zoot Allure's guitar solo pasted over a completely unrelated instrumental track. I'm not entirely convinced that all the instruments weren't lifted from completely unrelated origins. It's chaotic, but it really works in the Zappa world somehow. Frank doesn't let up on the heavy blues meets dumb guitar rock, though. Think uh, Bamboozled by Love, Sex, and Suicide Chump, songs like that. But man, oh man, does he lay the dumbness on thick with Stevie's spanking. Of course, the dumbness is always intentional. There's not much to say about Stevie's spanking either. It's apparently a true tale of a groupie encounter that occasional Zappa guitarist Steve Vai had experienced, and the story itself, which I will not retell here, is just about the only really memorable part besides a riff that you can't get out of your head. Not to say that that repetitive guitar riff doesn't have its own merits, but when Frank gets into the groupie subject, less is usually more with the amount of time that the track takes up. In this case, it's around five minutes that feels much longer. It's fine, but not the most rewarding portion of this big song. And 
And then Baby Take Your Teeth Out. It's an oddly short little ditty, which is pretty memorable with lots of vocals from Ike Willis. And it leads into an instrumental called Marcuson's Chicken, which was reportedly a vamp that Frank really connected with. And it's the third instrumental in this movement of the big song. But the heavily digital sounding instruments make them all rather interchangeable, kind of, unless you're really dissecting the songs on a musical level, or possibly even better, hearing the songs out of context. These examples of music without words does help this portion of the big song to flow quite smoothly, though. Uh, once we get to Planet of My Dreams and Be In My Video, we're snapped back into, gosh, this stuff is almost normal territory. The former is a piano-driven number that isn't terribly remarkable musically, but I believe that it's a huge component in the overall conceptual continuity, which at this point I'm believing to be... Uh, the concept is the Earth kind of sucks, but we're always free to dream of a more interesting place. The latter song, Be In My Video, really should have been a massive hit. It's another doo-wop-inspired track, but with its lyrics firmly planted in the music video cliches of early MTV, if Frank had pulled off an actual video to go along with this, I can't help but thinking that the song could have nearly equaled the success of Valley Girl. Musically, it didn't fit in within the tight radio formats of the time, but I have to assume that MTV would have gotten such a huge kick out of it that they'd have placed it in very heavy rotation, especially with all of the nods to Bowie's Let's Dance era, which had dominated their airwaves at the time. Of course, leave it to Frank to follow up the hit that should have been with the impenetrable but quite musically impressive title track of Them or Us, which is sliced directly out of a 1982 performance of The Black Page Number no. 2, and to follow that with the kind of slight Frogs with Dirty Little Lips, a tune that Frank's son Ahmet had made up the words to, which leads directly into... Are you ready for this? That's right, an incredibly straight cover of Whipping Post by the Allman Brothers Band. I was pretty surprised by that as well. Frank's band does absolutely lay waste to the song in the best way possible, but unless you know that this was a response to a ludicrous audience request in Finland from the 70s, it seems mightily out of place. But Frank took this joke very seriously, and Bobby Martin gives a guttural vocal reading that would make Greg Allman more than just a little competitive. Somehow, Frank's band turns this joke cover into one of the most emotionally stirring moments on the entire record, and that's where it ends. And Them or Us, it's just fine. It might not blow you away. When it's good, it's very good, and when it's annoying, it can become interminable. But all of these nods to earlier Zappa work are especially welcome after the left turn of a bunch of orchestral work that had immediately preceded this. The ZFT CD sounds okay, but it's a bit more cold and digital than many of these discs have felt up until this point. Not quite as shrill as, say, Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch, but not nearly as lively as The Man from Utopia sounded. But as I know what's coming next, this uh, feels like a bit of fan service, a bit of calm before the storm, if you will. You really need this relatively light-hearted record to enter into our larger composition at this very moment. Hear me now, and believe me in just a minute.
23, ZFTCD number 41, Thingfish, released by Frank Zappa in December of 1984. Once upon a time, must have been around October a few years back, in one of those top secret laboratories the government keeps stashed away underneath Virginia, a evil prince, occasionally employed as a part-time theatrical criticizer, set to working on a plot for the systematic genocidical removalance of all unwanted, highly rhythmic individuals and sissy boys. Let me get this out of the way up front. I hated Thingfish, and I was surprised, too. When I'd read about it and even checked out Side One when I first bought the vinyl box set a long time ago, I thought it could be really cool and highly controversial, sure. I just hadn't actually sat down to take the whole thing in. That was in... The before times. Those were such innocent and carefree days. On a seemingly normal Monday morning, I had to take a lengthy drive, so I figured it'd be a great time to dive headfirst into this two-disc monolithic piece of the big song. I somehow made it all the way through and decided that, yes, further listens might be necessary to really take it all in, but I wouldn't be finding out. I genuinely, deeply, truly despised everything about it. Part of my distaste for this project came from what I saw as squandered potential. It was another story within the story, like Joe's Garage, but this one was apparently something that Frank was intending to actually stick on Broadway. And the premise? It seemed like the ultimate social commentary. I was ready. <laughs> the story of Thingfish in as much as anyone can simplify it, is inspired by the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. In Frank's story, an evil scientist wanted to eradicate non-white people and quote-unquote sissy boys. The concoction used to do such a thing was dumped into something called galut cologne, which you might remember cologne first being referenced with that pronunciation in the album Bongo Fury. Anyways, the Galut Cologne had turned, again, quote, highly rhythmic individuals into something called Mammy Nuns, which were people with large potato heads, lips like a duck, and the inability to control their bowels. This excited the government greatly, and now the Mammy Nuns had turned to Broadway to tell their story. That's a really, really short version of it. Kind of like saying Titanic is about a really big boat. Ike Willis was pretty much one of Zappa's main vocalists at the time, and he was the head Mammy Nun. And as you heard in that intro clip, he speaks with the exaggerated Amos and Andy voice you might remember from the middle of the title track to the song You Are What You Is. There's also the characters of Harry and Rhonda, and they've come to the Broadway show to enjoy a traditional Broadway show, but they soon become part of the performance. Again, I'm watering this down like a censored-for-TV version of Scarface. It goes on and on for 90 interminable minutes. The dialogue pretty much never ceases, and you get every, every aspect of the story pounded into your skull over and over in the most excruciating detail possible. Now, on one hand, it's problematic by the standards of pretty much any society, just based on the racial caricatures alone, but also, it just turned out to not be a good story. With this being the soundtrack to a never-realized play, there's never a moment where anything is left to your own imagination. 
everything is narrated to you in, well, a voice made up by a white man to make fun of black people. Or... I think? And this begs the question. As Frank was white, is he just furthering that minstrel show tradition in his own way without meaning to? Probably not intentionally, but moments do smack of, well, I have a black friend doing this, so I'm exempt. It's the closing monologue where the Thangfish claims that all of these things are true. That's the part that sticks with me. So yep, I'm to walk away from Thangfish believing that severe government-mandated mutation took place and then someone fucked a briefcase. Seriously. My wonderful, wonderful pussy doesn't need you. I have my briefcase, Harry. I'm going to fuck my briefcase. I'm going to look, look at this. I got it right over here. There, see it? My big brown briefcase. My briefcase. It's big, Harry. Look, I'm not really in a position to judge anybody. You're either going to love this or hate it, and there will be no in-between. And it has every right to exist, and I'm pretty sure that if Frank had really taken this to the stage, his career would have been ruined. America wasn't ready for this in 1984, and they certainly aren't ready for it now, but once more, it's just not good. Okay, so why is it so bad, you say? Well, for one, it's exceptionally lazy. The bulk of the music has already been heard. But these aren't just like mere reprisals. This sounds as if it was put into one of those karaoke programs that tries to remove the lead vocal but just makes everything sound kind of out of phase and coded in artificial reverb. And Frank certainly could have remixed those original tapes so the Thingfish wouldn't have just sounded like he was slapped over the top as an afterthought. But in some cases, like You Are What You Is, Ike Willis just wiggles his way into speaking over every single vocal break. One at well, see the nignant with knife? Proceed with caution, knife may be open. Alright, let's go! Mercedes Benz! And that's really the most offensive part of the album to me. Frank rewrote all this beloved older material like Miss Pinky, The Meek Shall Inherit Nothing, The Torture Never Stops, etc. But he did it in literally the laziest way possible. So not only is the story troubling when it isn't inscrutable, but the production and new lyrics just simply sound like they were slapped together in one rush session. So it's like the anti-Joe's Garage where he took some songs that maybe hadn't been used before and strung them together in an attempt to tell a story, and it was really successful because this was new to us. This one is just, here's some crap that I released before, let's throw this dialogue over it, we'll change a couple of lines here or there. No, I can't even be bothered to erase the original vocals. So lots of money was thrown into Thingfish, and it comes off as like the most slapdash release in Frank's history, hoping to get by on being shocking and offensive, and it doesn't. It fails miserably but it's also incredibly artistically successful. Assuming that Harry and Rhonda are supposed to represent us, the listening audience, if Harry and Rhonda are hating every second of this, and this is a huge jab at Broadway, musicals, and the ignorance of the average American, well, it seemed that Frank didn't want me to enjoy it. He wanted to get something across in the most direct way possible, and he didn't care if I liked it or not. In fact, the more uncomfortable I am, the more successful the piece becomes. So, congratulations, Frank. You did it. 
I detested everything about this record besides the initial plot synopsis I'd read on Wikipedia, and now I'm kind of uncomfortable owning this album. That's pretty powerful, man. Now it should be pointed out that this is your one-stop shop for conceptual continuity. That philosopher from Studio Tan? Potato-headed Bobby Brown from One Size Fits All and Shake Your Booty? A duodenum from Lumpy Gravy? Glue and Grateful Dead tickets from the song Teenage Win? Verbiage from Valley Girl, etc. The list goes on and on to the point where I'd almost suggest if one were to make a map or flowchart of conceptual continuity itself, it'd be easier to start with Thingfish and then work your way backwards, but that's just about all that this album really has to offer. Well, and if I'm being honest, He's So Gay is just way catchier than it has any right to be. He's so gay. I'm thrilled that the next album in the big song is more music without words because Thingfish was so difficult that I considered giving up this project and walking the hell away. And Frank would likely be thrilled that he challenged my own personal boundaries of being politically correct, but the end result was that the whole piece comes out as one big mishmashed ball of trying too hard to shock with the words while barely seeming to try at all with the music. So how's the ZFT CD sound? I'm sure that's what you're wondering at this point. Just fine, I guess. Considering that the production is so deeply flawed from the get-go, there's really not much to report. It's all audible. I don't think that quality is the most important thing here. With so many words, it really comes down to this. You either like Thingfish or you don't, and much like an audiobook, audio quality couldn't matter less. Maybe if I'd seen it on stage as Frank intended, I'd have liked it more or possibly understood it on a different level. And I wouldn't have been bothered by just, I don't know, you get stuck for a song, just turn an earlier one backwards. I mean, literally, just play it in reverse. I don't have that visual Broadway component that was, you know, the original point of making this, but I'd be willing to give it a shot if such a thing could ever be accurately produced from Frank's notes, but as an album, I'd rather just never hear this again. Week 25? No, week 26. ZFT CD number 42, Francesco Zappa, released just a month after Thangfish in November of 1984. No, I know what you're thinking. Thingfish didn't scare me off. I actually had to take a few weeks off due to some personal turmoil, but it also gave me a little bit of time to figure out how to go about continuing this project. You see, there's going to be some upcoming releases which one should rightfully consider to be in the big song, but I simply can't do it for reasons of finances and flat-out availability. But also, I had to figure out how to talk about Francesco Zappa. Francesco Zappa is equally as derided as Thingfish, but for wholly different reasons. The album Francesco Zappa purports to be the music of the classical composer of the same name who was active in the late 1700s, and the music was merely fed into the synclavier and then spat out onto the awaiting discs. Some think that this is bunk, that there was no such person and this was a huge prank pulled by Frank, though plenty of evidence exists to support that the other Zappa was in fact a very real person. 
ultimately, this is an album full of music not by Frank Zappa, and no musicians appear. It's exactly as the primitive synthesizer spat it all out. Other than someone having to write these pieces in the first place, practically no human beings were needed to complete this album. So what does it sound like? It sounds like exactly what it is. Short classical pieces from the 1700s spat out by a computer. And only the first track breaks the three-minute barrier. It's all perfectly pleasant. Really. It is. It sounds kind of... Christmassy. Totally innocuous, actually. You could put this album on during the holidays at an airport or something, and everyone would just think, oh, they're playing holiday music. There's truly nothing else really going on here, and with that description, I have plum run out of things to say about the album known as Francesco Zappa. The ZFT CD sounds just fine. I expected it to be a bit more shrill based on what I'd read, but it's all seemingly soaked into some very surprisingly welcoming and pillowy digital reverb that softens the sharp edges of computerized harpsichords and concertinas. If you've ever wanted an album that sounds like the soundtrack to a music box for 37 minutes, Francesco Zappa is your jam. And after Thangfish, this is exactly what I needed for another sharp left turn. It's pretty nice, though wholly inessential. We're officially in the wild west of Frank's recorded material now. ZFT 43, The Old Masters, box number one, released in April of 1985. No, that's not your imagination. That is Hungry Freak's Daddy, the song that opens the very first Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention album, Freak Out, and I can't review these. These boxes were vinyl reissues of the early Zappa records. Freak Out, Absolutely Free, Lumpy Gravy, We're Only In It For The Money, and Cruisin' With Ruben And The Jets. Only ever available on vinyl, and they cost an arm and a leg, and they've been out of print for years. The ZFT has not reissued these on CD under this guise. And there's also a bonus album that would later arrive on its own posthumously as part of Mystery Discs. So basically, we're having to imagine that we just heard all the early Zappa albums again after Francesco Zappa, except for We're Only In It For The Money, has been completely remixed to remove the bass and drums, which have been replaced by 80s performances. I'm okay with simply imagining that the big song has a whole slew of reprisals right now, because I can't afford 175 bucks to do this any other way. If this kills my journalistic integrity, please accept my apologies. You're all welcome to pitch in and buy these boxes for me, and I'll start all over again, as this won't be the last release of this nature. So, let's move right along. ZFT CD number 44, Frank Zappa meets the Mothers of Prevention, released in November of 1985. Would you believe it? Uh-huh, don't even care. Uh-huh. 
let's start with the inevitable part of the story. In 1984, Frank Zappa wasn't terribly happy with the Parents Music Resource Center. He gave a testimony in front of a bunch of senators and folks from Congress about how ludicrous it was that anyone should dare attempt to put warning stickers on records to signify which ones are objectionable. But he also knew that the PMRC, which was made up of mostly a bunch of senators' wives, was all a big smokescreen to detract attention away from a bill known as the Blank Tape Tax. And really, those hearings are pretty infamous, and they're available to watch pretty much anywhere that one would stream Zappa PMRC hearings. I bring this all up because there's a track here called Porn Wars, where Frank samples and plays with segments of that hearing. But he didn't release it outside of North America because he wasn't sure that the audiences abroad would get it. The ZFT puts all of the tracks from all of the various international versions in one place, and we're off to the races. We open with a repetitive and funky blues number called I Don't Even Care, and it's another workout with Johnny Guitar Watson on vocals. Very cool, and again, rather innocuous. Just general riffs on how the narrator doesn't even care. That's about it. But a neat opener, because we're soon dumped right off into the land of Sinclavier with One Man, One Vote, Little Beige Sambo, and Aerobics and Bondage. I'm not totally clear on why so many people jump off the Zappa bus when Frank plays with that synthesizer. I think it sounds really cool, and it's producing music that truly few human beings would have been able to perform in the first place. Take a listen to the off-kilter runs and tonal changes of Little Beige Sambo, for example, and try to imagine actual living persons getting it together and making that piece work exactly as composed. Heck, just try to count the time signatures on your own. Some may have felt that Frank was getting a bit lazy with his reliance on synthesizers, but compositionally he was becoming more and more fearless because he didn't have to fear human limitation. When we land back into some vocal territory, we're greeted with the terminally catchy and mean for mean's sake, we're turning again. We're turning again is a diatribe against folks that put deceased musicians on pedestals and romanticize the 60s. Reportedly, some of Frank's usual musicians were so turned off by the lyrics that they'd refuse to work on the tune in the studio, but the only thing that truly makes the song nearly indefensible is, well, Ike goes back into the Thingfish voice halfway through, and once you know that, you can't unhear it, but overall, it's actually a really cool song. Alien Orifice, though, it's one of those patented how-the-heck-did-they-play-that instrumentals, though the incredibly dated synthesizer tones don't really set it far apart from the Synclavier material. One starts to see the appeal of Zappa's preference to make music without the human element with this kind of track, because much of what was being played by a person was being synthesized in some way in the first place, even a track like this that was captured at a live performance. But man, that guitar solo that pops up halfway through is really welcome. Now, the last thing that one might have expected at this point was to veer off into lounge singer territory with a song like Yo Cats, but that's precisely where we end up. Tommy Mars wrote some cheesy Vegas music so that Ike could deliver Frank's angry letter to the Musicians Union. He clearly wasn't a fan of unions in general. 
but as that particular union had caused him very specific grief, one can't blame him. There's a number of those types of stories in the real Frank Zappa book, which Zappa penned himself, and if you've gotten this far in this piece we're doing, there's really no excuse for you to not have already read it twice. The quiet highlight of the album, though, is truly What's New in Baltimore, which bridges together the best of Frank's synthesizer work with live musicians and one of his most beautiful and soaring guitar interludes, This Side of Watermelon and Easter Hay. And it's a good thing because Porn Wars follows. And if you aren't in a specific mood for the craziness of that track's early takes on chopping and screwing spoken voices, it can be a pretty grating 12 minutes. Snorks and all. H.R. 2911 is the official name of the bill that was known as the Blank Tape Tax, and it's also the name of the spooky Sinclavier-driven song that rounds out this segment of our big song. Definitely leaves you with one of Frank's most unsettling album closers since, say, the chrome-plated megaphone of Destiny. And overall, Frank Zappa meets the Mothers of Prevention is much cooler than its reputation would have you believe, but without some prior knowledge of the circumstances, it could be a little bit confounding, which leaves it just shy of making it to the masterpiece stack, but it's still awfully good. And our ZFT CD sounds very nice. I've got a copy of the European version on vinyl, and it's not too strikingly different in the Sonic Signature department. I suppose that this one doesn't feel quite as dry as the original version, but that's not a detrimental thing by any means. I'd really been expecting the worst after Thingfish, but each successive release has been pretty solid on its own so far. Week 27, ZFT CD number 45, Does Humor Belong in Music? Released by Frank Zappa in January of 1986. Frank Zappa albums are partially recorded live and then punched up in the studio, so this one becomes a bit of an anomaly. It's just a straight, hour-long live record. Sure, there's a few things we've never heard before, but this is definitely presented as a live document, and if there were post-production touch-ups apart from Xenocrony, they aren't glaring. A bit of history, this album originally came out in 1985 and the compact disc was still a pretty new thing for consumers. To my knowledge, this was the only authorized Frank Zappa CD on the market at the time and it stayed that way for a little while. Best as I can tell, Frank really liked the format but wasn't wild about doing a compilation or something so he pulled together a bunch of tunes from his most recent tour to test out the digital market. There's also a companion home video from a different show, has a different smattering of songs, and is intercut with a bunch of interview footage, this is a nice one to press the play button on to get the idea of what a 1984 Frank Zappa concert was like. And coming out of the spooky and challenging HR 2911 from the last album, it's a bit comforting to walk right into a familiar guitar workout like the version of Zoot Allures that opens this collection, and that wallops its way right into a tight new Tinseltown Rebellion, which is played at a much faster clip than the album it originally appeared on, but also has tons of interjections that lampoon the then-current MTV bands of the day, including a dig at Culture Club that simply hasn't aged terribly well, 
as well as nods to Whip It, Let's Dance, and of all things, Light My Fire. And it's not the only track where a vocal line is derailed by either Frank or Ike bursting into laughter, which is presumably what the title of this entry into the big song is referring to, because these songs aren't particularly humorous or anything. A new rendition of Trouble Every Day shows up, which isn't too dissimilar to the More Trouble Every Day version heard on ZFT-19, Roxy and Elsewhere, except this one is coated with tons of very 80s sounding keyboards and a few more digs at MTV. Hearing one of Frank's most powerful and memorable rock and roll tunes popping up yet again is a nice refrain for a big song, but it isn't really the kind of selection one would reach for if they wanted to show a friend how awesome Trouble Every Day is, but it does have a pretty righteous guitar solo in the second half. And the refrains keep on coming with an unexpected visit from Penguin in Bondage, which audibly makes the audience very happy. Just like a penguin in bondage, boy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh. A cool version it is, too. It also devolves into fits of laughter a few times, but it's still pretty interesting for some unexpected musical turns between lyrics, not the least of which is a short saxophone solo that quotes Jingle Bells for no apparent reason. It isn't all refrains and retreads, though. Hot Plate Heaven at the Green Hotel is a new tune from Zappa's The Rich Hate the Poor file. Fairly bluesy, uh, but a bit more upbeat than, say, a Stevie's Spanking or a Illinois Enema Bandit. Heavy on vocal harmony and a driving horn section. Seriously, Bobby Martin pretty much owns this album. And complete with another killer Zappa guitar exploration that gets more and more dense as it builds. It's a real highlight on a portion of the big song that might pass you by if you're not paying close attention. And that's followed by another highlight, another pass at What's New in Baltimore which is pretty recent. I mean, we just heard that track on Frank Zappa meets the Mothers of Prevention, but here we are. It's not as gorgeously intense as that version, but it does add a few passes of the titular line being sung, and that leads us right into a cover of the rather obscure song, Cocksucker's Ball by the Clovers. And it's only about a minute long, but it's effective and striking after so much instrumental work, especially with such colorful language. Zappo really wasn't happy with Republicans at this point in time, and he was not shy about reminding us at nearly every turn. And the live album is rounded out by three songs that are simply unexpected. A new reading of of WPLJ in a much lower key, a fiery and mostly instrumental piece called Let's Move to Cleveland, which I'll come back to in a moment, and for seemingly no good reason, one more cover of Whipping Post. Bobby Martin's vocal turn on the latter might be even more impressive than the version we'd heard on ZFT40, but with presumably so much material to pull from with the tapes of the 1984 tour, it doesn't make much sense to have another run-through of this tune so close to the last time we'd heard it, but... Back to Let's Move to Cleveland. This track reportedly dates all the way back to 1968 and references a particularly tasty bit of Peaches in Regalia and gives nearly every musician in the band at least a few bars to show off what they can do. The talent of the players shines past all of the ultra-dated tones that might plague listeners of today and goes to prove that while many Zappa fans have jumped off this train a few albums before this one, it certainly wasn't for lack of musicianship or interesting notes coming in at odd times. It's still pretty weird when you get right down to it. It probably doesn't absolutely need to be 16 minutes long, but thankfully it's still a pretty cool movement for the entirety of it. 
The title asks, does humor belong in music? I say, sure, why not? But despite the release being highly enjoyable and a bit refreshing after so much challenging music in such a short amount of time, it's sadly yet another relatively inessential album. It's pretty neat coming right out of the Mothers of Prevention album, but it doesn't seem to lead the big song anywhere new, but rather just serves to elongate it. The ZFT CD sounds pretty good, nice and crisp, uh, looks a bit heavily limited, and as this was designed for home CD players, I'd hope that the crispness was intentional. It's not a bad entry point, but as with most Zappa live albums, there are often references to things taking place in the concert that we cannot see, and that can be rather frustrating. It ain't bad, but I also might not notice if I tried to do the big song experiment again and forgot to play this portion. ZFT release number 46, The Old Master's Box 2, released by Frank Zappa in November of 1986. Same as the prior Old Master's Box, vinyl only, containing Uncle Meat, Hot Rats, Burnt Weenie Sandwich, Weasels Rip My Flesh, Chunga's Revenge, Fillmore East, June 1971, Just Another Band from L.A., and Yet Another Mystery Disc that would also be released on its own posthumously. And again, I don't have this box because it's very expensive and very out of print, so I'll just pretend that I just heard those albums again. I haven't read much about these releases having been tinkered with for the box, so I can't imagine that I'm missing out on much that I haven't already heard. I'll just imagine there was a bunch of reprises. I wish I could reach for this and hear it properly, but I simply can't afford that much dedication to this project. Thanks for understanding. Let's move along as if we just talked about those albums all over again. ZFT CD number 47, Jazz from Hell, released by Frank Zappa in November of 1986. Fresh off of his appearance in the TV show Miami Vice in the episode The Payback, Frank unleashes yet another album full of Sinclavier goodness. Though some people really dislike Frank Sinclavier work for reasons that I've never been able to comprehend, he absolutely needed this thing. It's next to impossible to imagine any human beings make these songs work with their mortal hands and instruments. Well, all but one. Saint Etienne is a live track recorded in 1982, and it's really just an excised portion of a Drowning Witch solo. If I'd just heard this coming out of, say, the Flo and Eddie albums on the second Old Masters box, I can't imagine what a shock to my system these sounds would be. It actually makes vastly more sense having just heard Does Humor Belong in Music, so yeah, I suppose if I was an older fan who'd just relived my youth with a bunch of older Zappa and then you dropped this synth record in my lap, I probably would have been a bit miffed but it's not as nonsensical as it seems on the surface. You see, remember those highly percussive pieces from Uncle Meat like Solar Cycle? This is really cut from that same cloth, but it's just done on a different instrument. And to my ears, it's actually a little bit more tonally pleasing. On one hand, each tune sounds like it could have been the theme song to some warped 80s drama on CBS or heck, 
incidental music on Miami Vice because of that synthesizer. But alternately, I find this more interesting than a lot of Uncle Meat because I'm pretty assured that this is exactly what Frank envisioned. These are the notes as they poured out of Frank's head. No pesky musicians that he might have to dumb things down for. And this is probably what it sounds like to live in Zappa's brain at times, and that's not something one can say about all of those early LPs. Many of those albums certainly had their share of compromises, but as Frank liked music without words most of all, and there's nary an actual word to be found here, this seems like an incredibly pure distillation of what the guy actually wanted to accomplish. Sheet music that was cool as heck to look at as art, but also had the interactive bonus of being able to be heard with the proper machinery. Sure, Jazz From Hell has individual compositions, but it all seems like it's part of one complete thought. Almost like the inner positive of we're only in it for the money. Each composition can stand on its own, but it's way more powerful when heard in context. down on my job here, but I'm struggling for the words to describe this music, but there's very little else like it on Earth, aside from the aforementioned live track. It's kind of twinkly, but it's also a bit disorienting, while also being a new version of perfection when it comes to tempos and impossible-to-play arpeggios. Some things like Masagio Galore, if I'm saying that right, might sound like someone turned on a bank of synthesizers, dropped a bunch of pebbles onto them, and recorded the results, but no, Frank actually sat down and wrote these things out. The synclavier did not work unless you put data into the machine. There are no accidents here. Frank heard these sounds being spit out of the machine, thought, yes, yes. This, this is, is what, what I was, I was going, going for. for, and then thought enough of said sounds to stamp it onto vinyl and ship it out into the world. It ain't for newcomers, and on some days it might actively annoy the living piss out of you, but based on what I've said about thinking that this is exactly as Frank wrote it, I have no choice but to stick Jazz From Hell in the masterpiece pile. There's nothing else like it that I've ever heard in the history of recorded sound, and Frank liked compositions like G-Spot Tornado to offer them up to orchestras to try to hear them play it. He had to mean this stuff. We weren't ready for it in 1986 when we gave it a Grammy, and it still doesn't sound like much else that exists as of 2018. Jazz From Hell is one of a kind, and it doesn't even ask you to understand it. It's merely there if you want to try. Oh, and the ZFT CD sounds very nice. Really immersive. I actually have an LP of this that I'd never played before, but I'd be hard-pressed to imagine much improvement. I'd always heard less than positive things about this album, but where I'm hearing it in the big song, it makes more sense than I ever thought possible, and it makes me mad at all of the music critics that made this seem like a lesser work. It's every bit as innovative as his uh, more popular work, and way more accessible than even I've made it out to be. You gotta be ready to enter a different world, but even at a seemingly slight 34 minutes, it's a much bigger planet than I was expecting. Week 28, ZFT CD number 48, London Symphony Orchestra Volume 2, released by Frank Zappa and the London Symphony Orchestra in September of 1987. As 
As stated in the last episode, the official ZFT release of London Symphony Orchestra Volume 2 has a retweezed track list, so I'm basically just talking about the second disc of an earlier set. Uh, to reiterate some earlier information, Frank wasn't pleased with the performances by this orchestra, and sometimes you can't tell if the music goes out of key or tempo on purpose, or if a whole section is drunkenly playing a strong wrong. Since Frank had major orchestral ambitions, this second set of symphonic recordings seems to represent our big song composer at a crossroads. He can finally afford the orchestra to make the music in his head, but he has a box called the Synclavier that won't get drunk and play badly. He needs the human element to make the sounds, but without that human element, the sounds that come out of the computer may seem cold and alienating to some that might otherwise enjoy the music. Interestingly, out of the four tracks on this disc, three are reprisals of material heard on the Orchestral Favorites album. I wouldn't go as far as saying that these are superior takes, just very different portals into what these refrains can do. The sole exception is a new take on Envelopes, a highlight from Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch. This one is taken at a slightly less frenetic pace and is given a little bit of room to stretch out. And actually, all of the music has room to stretch. It's bogus pomp that benefits the most from this treatment. It reprises numerous themes found in 200 motels while also cramming in a bunch of film music jokes that someone much more scholarly than I am would have to explain to you. Sometimes it can seem disconnected, but then you get hints of this town is a sealed tuna sandwich from 200 motels, and that's almost calming and reassuring. It can be difficult to remember that I'm supposed to be listening to one long song at every turn, but it's tracks like this that do a great job of reminding me. I'm not working as hard to keep it in mind. Now it just feels like it's of a piece. It doesn't feel like an accident that this comes on the heels of Jazz from Hell, which is full of perfect and accurate performances as spat out by a computer. While the liner notes of this record dictate that there are over 50 edits alone in the seven minute take on Strictly Genteel just to make it listenable. It's hard to enjoy knowing that there are bits that a perfectionist like Zappa couldn't have been happy with, and again, you aren't sure what's right or wrong at each turn. Doesn't much improve on the earlier versions, but it's interesting to hear a song from a movie that was seemingly held together by scotch tape in the first place being performed in such a ramshackle way. Of course, if you didn't read the liner notes, you'd probably never ever notice that anything was even supposedly wrong. And that's a testament to how powerful Strictly Genteel actually is. Now, as per what I said earlier in the last episode about this set, the ZFT CD ultimately sounds fine. The recordings do seem to be drenched in a quite a bit of digital reverb, but one can only assume that this is in place to try to cover up the perceived imperfections. But in a discography full of really crisp recordings, this effect starts to stick out a bit. It's a wonderful example of point and counterpoint after the last bits of the big song. Which will win, cold and perfect? or warm and incorrect, or is there even a winner at all? ZFT release number 49, The Old Masters Box 3, 
released by Frank Zappa in December of 1987. Yup, you guessed it. Uh, This one's not reviewed again because I can't afford the vinyl-only editions that retail at around $300, and it's never been issued on CD officially. It covers the following releases. Starts with Waka Jawaka, The Grand Wazoo, Overnight Sensation, Apostrophe, Roxy and Elsewhere, One Size Fits All, Bongo Fury, and ends with Zuda Lures. It's quite interesting that Strictly Genteel would move us right into Big Swifty one more time for another go-round of some of Zappa's most classic work. And we'd stop at Disco Boy, which would lead us into the next movement of the big song. ZFT CD number 50, Guitar, released by Frank Zappa in April of 1988. Listen, I'm willing to admit that I bit off far more than I could chew this week. This release is 130 minutes of excised guitar solos from various live performances. I'm sure there's some xenocrony here and there, which, if you're just joining us, is the process by which Frank would extrapolate one guitar solo and then put it over maybe a rhythm track or a bass track from somewhere else and just slap them on top of each other, see what would happen. I'm not positive that that's being used here, but that's, well, as it was used on the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar compilations, you can see why I'd think that such a similar release would employ the same devices. Also, there's not much information online for this movement of the big song, and I have a strong suspicion that this is a less beloved stepchild of the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar series. We opened with a pretty straight-ahead solo known as Sexual Harassment in the Workplace, which may not be a derivative work and stands strongly next to pieces like Black Napkins as sort of a signature guitar piece. Deep in this collection, there's also a new take on the beautiful watermelon and Easter hay that serves as a nice callback to earlier melodies, but if I'm being totally honest, this is truly just an overlong album with pieces of live recordings from songs like The Shake Your Booty Tango, Drowning Witch, Let's Move to Cleveland, Whipping Post, Again, Easy Meat, King Kong, and other oft-called-upon vamps. On one hand, it's very easy to see this as part of our big song because of those callbacks. And on the other, this thing gets really, really samey and has some of the most jarring edits I've ever heard in a Frank Zappa release. And I don't mean jarring like we're only in it for the money, with a song being interrupted for some seemingly disconnected chatter. No. Tracks actually cut off and come in mid-beat, and if these weren't digital recordings, one could swear that they're actually hearing the sound of scissors snipping at times. The usual flow just isn't really here. Now, when I say the usual flow just isn't here, that doesn't mean that there aren't really great, wonderful moments. And of course, it goes without saying, Frank's solos are as brilliant as they usually are. But this definitely smacks of overkill and too much of a good thing. There's a lot of reliance on dive bombing with a tremolo bar and bits that end with a lot of very fast yet eerily similar hammer-ons. The guitar tones don't change often enough to keep this listener engaged, and about 20 minutes in, my mind really does start to wander. And if that's how Frank designed it, complete with jarring edits to snap me back into listening mode every now and again, job well done. 
any of these pieces could probably stand quite well on their own. There's just too much here. And that's kind of cool because it's the kind of record that one can play endlessly, discovering new things at each turn. It's alternately so full of so many similar tracks that one may not feel the kind of pull back to the release to actually do such a thing. It's not bad at all, it's just a little bit flawed. Our ZFT-issued CD does sound quite nice, and it's a pretty bright album in some spots, likely owing to being recorded in the early days of digital capture. Not only were things brighter because of the medium, but it seemed like everyone was very excited by high-end not being as crushed as it might have been on vinyl. A lot of higher frequencies tended to distort on vinyl, you see. This release takes advantage of the expanded dynamic range of treble frequencies, but it doesn't seem to add much bottom end to balance it out. It's good, but it can be a bit fatiguing on long listing jags, which is especially problematic considering how often the tracks are pulled from the same melodic source material. However, knowing what comes next, it's kind of cool that the audience is so high in the mix at times for the sake of continuity. Week 29, ZFT CD number 51, You Can't Do That On Stage Anymore, Volume 1, released by Frank Zappa in May of 1988. We move from just the improvised guitar work of the live shows to excerpts from Frank's gigs over the years, arranged in a fashion that in some way resembles the flow of an impossible live concert. No matter which era of Frank's music speaks to you most, this portion of the big song is going to cover it. Now this may seem a bit morbid, but Frank passed away from prostate cancer. I don't know when he found out that he was ill, but knowing that, along with the number of refrains from the big song this release provides and which ones, it makes it sound like the life of the living, breathing composition is beginning to pass before its own eyes. From conversational snippets to dialogue introducing band members with various illnesses, literally, he just lists the band members to the audience and what they're sick with. What one walks away with in this movement is the overriding theme of having to carry on while you're ill. That doesn't necessarily mean that this is heavy or depressing in some way, but it's a questionable coincidence. We move from early renditions of Sofa with Flo and Eddie directly into instrumentals from Thangfish and into reggae-influenced reinterpretations of freakout material in less than 10 minutes. What should seem exceptionally cut up and impossible to listen to as anything less than a quickie clip show instead plays through with better continuity than some of the earlier pieces of the puzzle. through reminders of that old controversial groupie routine and into numerous references to Louie Louie until we're finally greeted with an early recording of the mothers playing plastic people from Absolutely Free set to the tune of Louie Louie, which is followed by an anyway, anyhow, anywhere reading of The Torture Never Stops. 
No doubt a nod to the constant Louie Louie request that Frank had to endure in the early club days of the Mothers. And fans of the instrumental side will have a few nuggets to enjoy during this piece, like a brisk take on Big Swifty and a scorching and distortion-wrenched reading of the Deathless Horsey. But the emphasis here is on lyrically-oriented material and Frank's attempts to bond with the audience, be it through crowd participation or directing other members in how to best communicate the lack of glamour in the rock and roll lifestyle. The big highlight in this segment is a three-song reprisal from You Are What You Is, which features Dumb All Over, Heavenly Bank Account, and Suicide Chump, which seem a bit more pointed than the slightly more sedate studio takes we'd been more familiar with at this point. Of course, in a set full of highlights, it feels a little redundant to point out the especially great performances. All of these lineups were just absolutely cooking, and here's some controversy for you. I would place this disc in the masterpiece pile. One could listen to the two CDs in this volume and walk away with a very, very good idea of what Frank Zappa was all about. The sound and performances are pretty much all exceptional, and there's no reason that this set couldn't simply be marketed as an introduction to Frank Zappa. Very little of this material would alienate first-time listeners, though some of the Flo and Eddie lyrics might offend the more politically correct folks. It's a perfectly contained capsule of nearly all that Zappa had been up to this moment in the song, and full of worthy reminders of how rewarding this journey can actually be. Ray White, Tommy Mars, Chad Wackerman, Ed Mann, Bobby Martin, Scott Tunis, Steve Vine. Thanks for coming to the show. Hope you liked it. Good night. Week 30, ZFT, CD, 52, You Can't Do That On Stage Anymore, Volume 2, The Helsinki Concert, released in October of 1988. And for our next stop in the big song, we focus on one entire concert. Have we even done this yet? A gig recorded in Finland in 1974. We revisit the lineup from Roxy and Elsewhere and many of their tunes, but with an incredibly different vibe. Whereas Roxy and Elsewhere was a strange mixture of laid-back precision, this gig certainly begins that way, but quickly builds steam. Some of the tracks are just powered through at such a quick clip that the musicians literally have trouble keeping up once or twice. Though the last volume left us off with a reprisal of Sofa Number no. 2, this one opens with a very different version of A Token of My Extreme from Joe's Garage. It's a bit more grooving, used as an opening vamp without solidified lyrics, and that takes us right into a similarly smooth reading of Stinkfoot, which is highlighted by Frank's classically biting lead guitar, but with a bit of wah-wah thrown in. The band makes a seamless transition into Inca Rhodes, with George Duke's keyboards really punctuating the UFO aspect of the lyrics. We also get a chance to revisit Redunzel in a much earlier version than we initially knew, and The Village of the Sun Suite, which is when the tempos really heat up. 
Really cool and different takes on already classic material. And hearing Ruth Underwood shine once again on Redunzel is an especially welcome treat. And there's a tasty bit of interplay between Frank and Napoleon Murphy Brock in room service. It's a fun vamp where Zappa attempts to have some food sent to his room, but the chef simply can't understand him due to a language barrier. Not to mention a much heavier take on Pygmy Twilight than I was expecting, and a second look at cheatness taken at such a clip that it's... It really sounds like the band can't wait to be finished with it. I'm finding it just a little bit difficult to come up with a ton of descriptive terms for these numbers since I've already gone that route when talking about this lineup when I talked about Roxy and Elsewhere and One Size Fits All. If you've dug that, you'll be happy to hear this but it just doesn't sound quite as warm and in your face as those releases. But there's cool stuff at every turn. Approximate is a challenging number with great percussion that the band alternately performs and then dances and then does acapella, while the 25 minute reading of Dupree's Paradise makes slightly more sense with little hints of narration and band interaction, complete with Steely Dan and Susie Quattro references than it did on The Perfect Stranger. But alternately, due to the extended duration, it does make the event drag a bit. Some welcome reprises of Uncle Meat material, like Dog Breath Variations and the title track to Uncle Meat, they're around, but the real crux of the disc is the band falling apart on Montana after Frank had the classic exchange with an audience member that requested Whipping Post, which one has to assume is the reason that Frank continued to release it numerous times. It's pretty funny and effective here considering the title infiltrates a jovial and slow rendition of the aforementioned Montana that really heats up and leads into a short bit of Big Swifty to close out the night. Too fast for you. One, two, one, two, three, four. The sound quality of this disc is pretty strange. Some instruments and vocals are mixed really far back and get a little bit lost in the mix, where somehow the most clicky kick drum I've heard in my entire life pumps its way through the mix. I'd be shocked to find out that it wasn't placed there in the 1980s as a sample. Based on the left-right separation stage image sound of the show, it's almost unfathomable to think that they found a kick drum sound that was that far ahead of its time, while Frank bemoans the miserable state of his touring equipment of the time in the liner notes. It's not the best sounding release in the catalog, but it's far from the worst, and if my assumptions about later tinkering are correct, I can't imagine being able to spruce it up for a future reappraisal. Still a very worthy listen, and a welcome change of pace from the relentless 80s tones that have dominated the latter part of Frank's big song. Week 31. ZFT CD, number 53, Broadway the Hard Way, released by Frank Zappa in October of 1988 on LP, and on CD in May of 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has just left the building. 
As we just swam in the waters of the Roxy era lineup for a little while, this big song could have gone in any number of unpredictable directions, but where it went might have been a matter of circumstance rather than artistic choice. Broadway the Hard Way is inextricably linked to a musically fulfilling but ultimately disastrous 1988 tour. Frank had a very, very large band to back him up, and that group just could not get along. Add in that Frank's health was probably showing the first signs of his illness, and that group likely could not have soldiered on even if they hadn't crumbled prematurely. Zappa lost a lot of money on this tour that went belly up halfway through, and as a result, he pulled from that era mercilessly for releases, presumably to make that money back. As Broadway the Hard Way is mostly built on new material, there's no telling if Frank had hoped to brush these things up in the studio later, or if he'd just gotten tired of the human element and preferred to go with undoctored live cuts. What you have is an album where a large percentage is new material, but with more crowd noise and audience interaction than Frank would normally use when presenting a new album rather than a live one. I know. I'm sorry. It's confusing. The short version is that this is mostly new compositions that just happen to be captured in front of an audience. So, picking up from the short Big Swifty on the last disc, we jump into 1988 and some vocalists we've never heard before, bringing us a waltz called Elvis Has Just Left the Building. Halfway through, we're greeted by a very creamy-sounding horn section, and it's clear that this group could really cook, as well as reproduce nearly whatever Frank wanted to accomplish with nearly minimal effort. This leads us into Planet of the Baritone Women, sounding a bit like a Russian march and is either a take on ineffectual men working on Wall Street or women trying to make it in the business world by acting as a man. If it's the former, it's using gender as an insult. If it's the latter, it says that some things cannot be done depending on the genitalia you were born with, and this may be someone else's perspective that Frank's delivering, but it certainly hasn't aged all that well. But an early highlight comes in the form of any kind of pain, which is geared to sound much like the theme to an imaginary 80s talk show, or not dissimilar to what the Sally Jesse Raphael theme music sounded like, and lyrically it describes the vapid type of celebrity that's famous for merely being famous. The music, besides the occasional Sinclavier gurgle, definitely sounds like a product of its time, but that's also why it works so well. Nearly everything you need to know about entertainment in that decade is laid bare in this underrated song, which also has one of the cleanest sounding solos that Frank has laid to tape in recent memory. And again, one of the best. You can put his guitar sojourn right next to anything from a prior release that's widely considered to be classic and still have it hold up on its own merits. This track is unfairly overlooked in a big song that's so long that it's easy to glaze over true highlights. It's also the first mention of Confinement Loaf on the record, a prison dish that became a source of great humor and amusement for this particular lineup. You take any kind of pain from me, wouldn't you, baby? You take any kind of pain from me, wouldn't you, baby?
There's a track called Dickie's Such an Asshole, which dates from the early 1970s, but receives its first official release here. It might seem out of place to have a bluesy vamp all about Richard Nixon here in the 1988 shows, but the theme of this record is definitely politics, so it's not quite as out of place as it might seem. Plus, even if you weren't terribly familiar with the Watergate scandal, Ike Willis delivers a breathless stop-start rant towards the end that's sure to keep anyone engaged, and it flows into the anti-Republican song When the Lies So Big, spelling out the dangers of the marriage between the GOP and the born-again types of folks that want to turn biblical law into earthly law. Frank was clearly fired up about this topic, and while he can be a bit heavy-handed with the lyrics, it's still effective, especially as a history lesson, to see exactly how we ended up where we are now. With a big old eye and a flag and a pie and a mom and a Bible, most folks are just liable to buy any line, any place, any time. When the lies so big, Robertson's case. Of course, Frank wasn't pleased with the Democratic Party either, and he dedicates the Johnny Cash-influenced Ryman Man to allegations about Jesse Jackson's backstory that are so hideous, I can't bring myself to repeat them. Which brings us to a left turn that practically roundhouse kicks the listener in the face. Frank makes an honest-to-goodness rap song called Promiscuous, wherein he takes then-Surgeon General... Everett Koop to task. Admittedly, it's not the strongest track, but it's one of the sadder moments in the big song, realizing that Frank could have experimented more with the hip-hop genre had he been allowed more time on Earth. The mind boggles at the heights he could have taken it to, but at the same time, the early stab isn't Frank's greatest work. Here we go. The Surgeon General, Dr. Coop, is supposed to give you all the poop. But when he's with PMRC, the poop he's scooping amazes me. C-SPAN showed him all dressed up in his phony Dr. God get up. He looked in the camera and fixed his specs. He gave a fascinating lecture about anal sex. Even more unexpectedly, we get led into a pretty exacting cover of the theme song from the TV show The Untouchables, and then a brand new take on... Tell Me You Love Me from Chunga's Revenge, this time sung from the perspective of Michael Jackson under the name Why Don't You Like Me. Now, knowing what we now know about him, it's a pretty mean tune, and even at the time, it must have seemed like a bunch of exceptionally cheap shots. There's a medley of horn-driven covers of standards like Bacon Fat and Stolen Moments with Sting popping up in the middle to do an interesting take on his own murder by numbers over the jazzy grooves the band was laying down and with seemingly no rehearsal. This kickoff to the second half feels a little inessential and doesn't really pick back up until we're met with a new and impassioned take on Outside Now from Joe's Garage. And somehow, every time Frank tackles this song, the solos get better and better. The 
absolute highlight of this album is the closing Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk, a 10-minute play-by-play of the mixture of televangelists and politics that's truly grotesque in an informative way. Musically, it's probably the tightest of all the new compositions, and descriptions simply aren't going to do it justice. It'd be one of the last, if not the last, new vocal track we'd get from Frank in his lifetime. And lines like, If you don't know by now the truth of what I'm telling you, then surely I have failed somehow, and Jesus will think I'm a jerk, and it would be true. Well, they end up being especially heartbreaking. Frank has devoted his life to broadcasting the world as he sees it, and if nothing changes, he may feel as if his life was wasted. And that's one emotional note to go out on. Perhaps it's their idea of an affirmative action plan To give white trash a special break When they took those G's old bucks and ran To the bank, to the bank, to the bank, to the bank And every night we can hear them thank their buddy up above For sending down his love While you this is not the final vocal release we'll get. It's not even the last one we'll have from this tour, but it does feel as if we're leading to our conclusion. So how is Broadway the hard way overall? I gotta level with you. If it were just the tightest nine new tracks, like it is on the vinyl release, this one would go directly into the masterpiece pile, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Unfortunately, the CD edition feels a bit bloated and drags on just a touch longer than it needs to. But it's nearly perfect, and as a time capsule of 1988, religion, politics, forward thinking, you simply can't beat it. It feels like there was so much more to say, too, but ultimately the vinyl version would be the preferred way to hear this album. Even the ZFT CD release is coded in unnecessary globs of digital compression, which does become a little bit fatiguing after a while. Broadway the Hard Way had dizzying highs, but is mostly a deep study in what could have been and the lessons that we should have learned. It's one of the most important and underrated records in Frank's entire catalog and the big song. Ladies and gentlemen, this is intermission. Get your butt out there and register to vote, would you please? See you in a half an hour. And on that uplifting note, we're going to close out this episode of Discography. We're just going to pause here for a bit, but we got a little bit further to go. And it's pretty important. Come on, we've come this far in the big song. We can't abandon ship now. My name is Mark with a C. You've been listening to Discography on the Consequence Podcast Network. Now, of course, all the music you've heard, that's the property of the Zappa Family Trust, and the instrumental music you've heard, the bed music, and the uh, theme, that's Air Hockey Saloon by none other than Chris Zabriskie. You can find out more about him at chriszabriskie.com. Now... I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, way back, if you remember that far, uh, that I'm an independent musician, and, you know, I just kind of create things all the time. 
You can find out a lot more about what I do at markwithac.com, which is really just a GUI for markwithac.bandcamp.com, but up top there's a bunch of cute little icons that'll take you to where you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, but let's just say you want to skip it. On Twitter, I'm at markfi. There's M-A-R-C-F-I, as in there is lo-fi, hi-fi, mid-fi, and markfi. And uh, let's see, what else should I tell you? Well, if you want to support my creative endeavors in general, like for example, so I can acquire more music to talk to you about here, or to go into making music of my own, which I've been doing for about 18 years as of this recording, you can support me at patreon.com slash mark with a C, M-A-R-C-W-I-T-H-A-C. Every dime spent there goes back into helping me make more cool stuff for you, and some of the perks that you can get are exclusive unreleased material, uh, live concerts of mine that have been recorded over the years, a completely different podcast that has a long and storied history called The Real Congregation. Some people seem to be quite fond of it. And exclusive monthly live streams. Heck, if you are a really high roller, you can even get me to write a song for you. I mean, come on. As of right now, my latest release is an album called Obscurity, which I went up to Canada to record with a producer named Jordan Zadarazny. You might know him from the band Blink or the Star, or you might know him from producing acts such as Mandy Moore, Chris Cornell, Melissa Oftermar, or co-writing songs from Whole Celebrity Skin album. I think it's the best record I've ever made, and if you like sarcastic indie pop, that is a record in that canon. Discography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network, and I'd like to invite you to check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, at Mark with a C's DIY studio that doesn't really have a name, and it's recorded and engineered by yours truly, Mark with a C. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been a blast so far, and I can't wait to do more with you. Thank you so much for the support. And the most important thing, really, the most important thing you can do if you dig this and opening your wallet's not a thing that you're like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, if you're a Zappa fan and you know another Zappa fan, tell them all about this show. And I'm sure there's a comment section. There's always a comment section. And this isn't just one mini-series here. We plan to do more discography series where we go through many, many, many other canons. You won't believe where we're going next. Uh, I don't want to give you any spoilers, but it'd be pretty hard to get further removed from Frank Zappa where we're going to head in the future. Anyways, thank you very much for listening. I'm Mark with a C. You're a fantastic audience, and I'll see you next time, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network.